You can keep that passage open, uh, John 15. In fact, it will also be helpful for you uh, to have your Bibles open, first of all, uh, at Isaiah chapter 5, uh, which we read earlier. We're going to think about both of these passages this evening, Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, and then we'll refer more briefly to John 15, verse 1. Thinking this evening about the field vine and the true vine. The field vine and the true vine. Seven times in John's gospel, Jesus uses the phrase, I am. He was the master teacher. And by repeating this phrase seven times and by using pictures from everyday life to, uh, to emphasize truths about himself, Jesus was impressing vital teaching upon his disciples. All of the I am sayings teach us that Jesus is God. Uh, we've reminded ourselves about that each and every time uh, that we've considered one of these phrases. It takes us back, this phrase, I am, it takes us all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, when, <coughs> when God called Moses. And Moses said to God, who is it that I'm to tell the Israelites has sent me? God was sending him back to lead his people out of, out of Egypt. And God told Moses, tell the people of Israel, I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. That was to be Moses' message. And Jesus was quite deliberately using this phrase himself to describe himself in those same terms, to uh, teach his people that he is God in human flesh. And as I've mentioned before, his enemies well understood that. On one occasion, Jesus said in the, in the hearing of, of, some, of the, the Pharisees, the scribes, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they tried to stone him to death because they knew that that was a claim to divinity. It was a claim to be God. And they took him to be blaspheming. It's a staggering truth, isn't it? That uh, as much as we try to meditate upon it, and uh, many choose to do so, particularly at this time of year, to meditate upon the coming of Christ into the world. We've, we've looked at it a little bit in Matthew's gospel as well. And yet it is a staggering truth that we, we can never really fully grasp the eternal God, the great I am, took on human flesh and came into human existence. And yet Jesus impressed this truth of who he was, this truth that he is the eternal God. He, he impressed it upon his people with such simple, everyday pictures uh, to emphasize that he is a, a personal, gracious, and loving God. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way. All these pictures, descriptions of things from everyday life, things in some cases that the disciples could taste and smell when Jesus said them, to emphasize the personal and, and near God that he was. This last I am saying provides, provides us with the most familiar and vivid picture of all, arguably, certainly would have been so for Jesus' first disciples. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Israel was a nation of vines and vineyards. Uh, just as green fields, often with cattle or sheep in them, uh, green fields dotted the landscape of Ireland, uh, vineyards dotted the landscape 
of Israel. You didn't have to be rich to have a vineyard, poor people. Uh, if they didn't even, maybe they didn't have a, a vineyard as such, but they kept vines and they harvested grapes, whether they were rich or poor, in large quantities or small. The grapevine was something like a national symbol for Israel, a bit like the Irish shamrock or the Scottish thistle. Listen to this description of the entranceway of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, this is from the Jewish historian Josephus. He said, the gate opening was completely overlaid with gold, <coughs> as was the whole wall around it. It had, moreover, above it those golden vines from which depended grape clusters as tall as a man. Jesus and his disciples would have walked in and out of that temple area in Jerusalem frequently. And the first thing that you noticed as you walked into the temple courtyards these huge golden vines. In the Old Testament, God frequently describes Israel as his chosen vine. And yet, almost as frequently, he describes his disappointment in his vine. His vine is criticized for its lack of fruitfulness. Listen to Jeremiah 2, verse 21. Jeremiah 2, 21. God says, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And by wild there, he means that the fruit is stinking and sickly and useless. <coughs> Psalm 80 and Ezekiel 15 also both speak of Israel as a disappointing vine. And so we're going to spend some time tonight focusing on one Old Testament passage in particular that describes Israel, the nation of Israel, the church as it was in the Old Testament, as a failed vine, a vine that should have done much better. And we're doing so because it's that Old Testament picture that Jesus very much has in mind when he describes himself as the true vine. And we'll think about that more briefly this evening and more fully on the Lord's Day. So just two points this evening. And we'll spend more of our time on the first one. Let's think first of all tonight about Israel, the field vine. Israel, the field vine. And this is Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 5, as you'll have appreciated as we read through about half of it earlier, it's a chapter of judgment. It is directed at the church of the Old Testament, which was the nation of Israel, and it's a chapter prophesying judgment on Israel. About 40 years after Isaiah first preached the message of chapter 5, uh, Assyria, the superpower nation of the day, invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and conquered it and defeated it. You remember the, the kingdom had split the ten tribes in the north, the tribe of Judah and allied with it, the tribe of Benjamin in the south. And the northern tribe was conquered about 40 years after this prophecy from Isaiah by the nation of Assyria. Isaiah says in verse 1 that he is going to sing a song about a vineyard. And some writers believe that because he puts it in that way, that this is a song of sorts. <coughs> some writers suggest that he would have given this prophecy at harvest time, at the Feast of Tabernacles in the autumn. Uh, because generally speaking, people are in a good mood. At harvest time, people would get together, they would celebrate the harvest, they would offer, the devout believers would at least, would offer their first fruits to God, 
and then they would have a bit of a celebration. And so some writers suggest that uh, in the midst of this happy scene, this happy atmosphere, people singing joyful songs to celebrate the harvest, Isaiah chooses to change the mood or to get people's attention by announcing that he's going to sing a song. But it's a very different song from what everyone else was likely singing. His is a song of judgment. He says in verse 1, My beloved, that's God of course, the, the Yahweh of Israel. My beloved had a vineyard. And Isaiah emphasizes the thorough care and the devoted preparation that the owner of the vineyard gave uh, for it to prosper. Look at verse 2. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He did the, he did the backbreaking work of clearing the ground and making sure that the ground was fertile for the vine to get all the goodness from the soil. Verse 2, he planted it with choice vines, not Tesco value vines, not unimpressive vines, the best vines. He even built a watchtower in the midst of it, verse 2. Most vineyard owners would have maybe put, put together a sort of a thrown together little shack and if they did feel the need to hire workers, either to keep the vineyard or to guard it from robbery, it was just a little makeshift thing usually. But this song, in this song, the vineyard owner builds a sturdy, secure watchtower out of stone, which was far better, of course. It would have been far more inviting for the guards. It would have given them a better view if thieves were coming from a distance. They would have been able to protect the vineyard. Isaiah also says that the owner hewed out a wine vat for the vineyard. That shows that he's making a long-term investment. He has the, the wine vat on site right next to the vineyard. And so this is not just a hobby. This is his full-time occupation. As soon as the, the grapes are harvested, they go into the wine vat. And, and, the, and the grape juice is collected as quickly as possible. So the picture here, friends, is of a, a thorough professional job done by the vineyard owner. This would be the equivalent perhaps in our more agricultural part of the world, like a dairy farmer sowing the best grass seed, building top of the range sheds, installing the most up-to-date milking equipment in his parlor. Here's the conclusion God comes to in verse four. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? And that's a rhetorical question, of course, that there's nothing. There is nothing more that could have been done. Everything that could possibly have been done for a, a fertile, fruitful vineyard to be uh, nurtured and, and harvested was done. And of course, friends, Isaiah's song here about this vineyard, it's a parable about what God had done for his people. Look at verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. This whole chapter is directed at God's chosen people, Israel. Isaiah is reminding them that as far as God's relationship with Israel went, nothing had been missed on God's part. God had provided them with everything. 
He'd spoken to their forefather Abraham, and he had made covenant promises to Abraham. Remember how when God made that covenant, <coughs> there were the animal carcasses split in two and divided. And, and ordinarily in, in, in the ancient world, when you made a covenant, both parties walked between the pieces, saying that if I break the terms of this covenant, then the punishment will be on me. And yet what did God do with Abraham? Abraham was in a deep sleep. And the fire pot, symbolic of the presence of God, it goes through the animal pieces by itself. God was saying, I will provide everything for this covenant to be kept. I will make sure that this covenant is maintained. And he promised Abraham descendants, and he promised Abraham a land, and he promised Abraham that uh, his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. He promised blessings for obedience. He also promised cursing for disobedience. And God had rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and God had brought them through the Red Sea and put up with them in those years of wilderness wandering and foolishness and given them the Ten Commandments and <coughs> led them to the border of the Promised Land. He said to them in Deuteronomy 6, as that new generation prepared to go into the Promised Land, and God said to them in Deuteronomy 6 verse 10 that he was going to give them cities you did not build, Houses you did not fill, cisterns you did not dig, olive trees you did not plant. God was just handing all of this over to Israel. Deuteronomy 4.33, has such a great thing as this ever happened or was ever heard of? Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? goes on to remind them in great detail of all the amazing things that he had done for them. Israel is this fertile hill that Isaiah sings about. She was like a vineyard, carefully cultivated, painstaking effort taken to produce maximum fruitfulness in the vineyard. And yet what kind of return did the beloved, did God get from his investments in his vineyard? Look at the end of verse 2. He looked for it to yield wild grapes, or sorry, to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. The NIV has bad fruit. And actually, we could use stronger language there than wild or bad. The original language there means stinking grapes, repulsive, disgusting grapes. The smell of them would have turned your stomach. You'd rather have found nothing than find this kind of fruit. The key line is in verse 7. Speaking of God, looking at his nation, his people. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God found the exact opposite of what he wanted and expected in his people. It wasn't just that there was no Fruit in Israel, but there was bad fruit, stinking fruit. Instead of being a just nation by the time of Isaiah, Israel was a corrupt nation. Instead of being pure, she was defiled, covered in the filth of sin, particularly sexual sin. Instead of bringing God glory, she brought God sorrow. And the rest of Isaiah 5, 
It goes on to examine this stinking fruit more closely. We don't have time to uh, go into specific uh, close examination of all these things. But, but amongst other things, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5, he condemns the materialism of Israel, blasphemy, open corruption in society, a general lack of morality. That was the kind of nation that Israel had become by the days of Isaiah. They had had every conceivable blessing. God had given them mighty kings and David and Solomon. He'd given them financial prosperity. He'd given them a priestly and sacrificial system of temple worship, all of which he, he commanded every detail of it to emphasize to them that there can be forgiveness of sin through sacrifice offered to God, that God would be gracious with them, that God is near to them, that God's presence was with them. And having given them all of that, God had looked for good fruit from his, from his vine and found only a stinking mess. And Isaiah makes very clear in the rest of the chapter that as a result of that, punishment and judgment is coming upon Israel. Israel was a field, fruitless vine. Now, of course, we are not the natural ethnic descendants of Israel, and, and nor are we to entirely equate our nation or any nation today with what the nation of Israel was in the Old Testament. It was the church of God in the Old Testament. But as men and women who in some ways are the spiritual descendants of, of Israel, we are, we're of Jesus Christ, were they Israel today? We have to ask ourselves, how fruitful are we? How fruitful are we? There's a sense in which this passage could be applied to all of mankind. Because just as with Israel, so with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what more could have been done for them by God? God created human beings, spoke to us, blessed us, gave us everything to enjoy him. Instead, we choose sin and suffering. And it's still true today that instead of fruitfulness in the world God has given us, we see a stinking mess. We see the stench of sexual perversion reeking in our country. The stench of idolatry, of drunkenness, of selfishness, of corruption. It's hard to get it out of our nostrils. But it's the church today, as it was the nation of Israel in Isaiah's day, that has been particularly blessed and chosen and provided for by God. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 48, Everyone to whom much has been given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So what about the church today in Northern Ireland? Have we been given much? Or a little, much. Just in a purely material, physical sense, we, we don't even think about where we're getting, going to get clean water when we turn on the tap. Our fridges, more often than not, are crammed full of good food. We can rest and travel and work with far more freedom and ease than the vast, vast majority of people in the world. God has graciously given those things to many, many people in our part of the world, the church included. But of course, as the church, we've received far more important blessings. We can look back over hundreds of years in our part of the world to God raising up preachers 
and some particularly influential and, uh, and preachers that God has used mightily, men like John Knox and Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones and plenty more far less famous preachers as well. Can't drive for more than 15 minutes in most parts of Northern Ireland without seeing some kind of worship building. We've had the Bible in our own language and we've had our own preachers to explain it for hundreds of years. Our young people, I hope, have some appreciation of the privileges of growing up in a Reformed Presbyterian denomination. They're not in a perfect denomination, there is no perfect denomination. Our young people are richly blessed. We have a strong theology, a covenant theology of life and worship. Baptism is administered to the children of believers, and we can benefit from that baptism as we grow older, as we reflect upon all that it means. We have Sabbath schools and camps to train up our children, books for all ages to help us better understand the Bible, summer mission teams, mission teams at other times that we can go on to stretch ourselves and humble ourselves and serve our God. We have wealth. As much as we all probably feel that we could do with a little more, we have, mo we have so much more than most other people in most other parts of the world. And that wealth is to be invested in the kingdom of God. To whom much is given, much will be required. And yet as we examine ourselves in preparation to come to the Lord's table, perhaps we have to confess that we don't see as much fruit in our lives as there could or should be. Considering how much we've been given, have we really, turned to go, have we really returned to God as much fruit as we should? Have we been as eager and ready to talk about Christ as we should? Have we been as patient and gracious with our family, our loved ones, our children, our spouse, as we should? Have we stored up God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against him, as we should? Have we been as excited to open up the scriptures as we have been to turn on the TV or to scroll on our phones even this week? Have we been as quick to invest in the kingdom of God as to invest in our own little kingdom, our own stuff, our own interests. Has the church, the wider church, in Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom really been as fruitful as we could or should have been? None of us have been, despite all that God has done for us. Perhaps even this very night, this weekend, as we prepare ourselves to come to the table, there's, there's the stench of sin, unrepented sin, in some area of our lives. Certainly that is the case for the wider church and our wider society in our part of the world today. But that's why we need to turn from Isaiah chapter 5 to John chapter 15. And so having thought about the field vine, I want to think briefly this evening and much more in the Lord's day about Jesus, the true vine. Jesus, the true vine. And so we turn to John 15 verses 1 and two. <clears throat> That's how Jesus describes himself here in verse one. I am, <coughs> I am the true vine, the true vine. The word there means, as we would say, 
the genuine article. And we'll think more about that on the Lord's Day. But tonight I want us to think about it in relation to the vine of Israel. Because in every area where the nation of Israel failed in the Old Testament era, Jesus came and succeeded. We tend to think of Jesus as the Savior of Israel, which of course he absolutely is. But he is also the true and better Israel himself. And uh, hopefully touched on this a little bit, and we'll see it again in Matthew's Gospel. We thought about uh, those words from Matthew's, uh, that Matthew quoted uh, just this past Lord's Day. Matthew uh, quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 in Matthew chapter 2, and he applies it to Jesus. Uh, Hosea 11, verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so there's this theme in the Old Testament of Israel as God's son. Exodus 4, 22 uh, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, Israel is my firstborn son. And God takes his son out of Egypt in that first exodus. And God takes his son out of Egypt and takes his son into the promised land so that his son, the nation of Israel, will live a holy life and be salt and light in the world, so to speak, that through the worship of Israel and the the, the general society of Israel, the way that they were to love their neighbor, the way that they were to do justice, the way that they were to care for the orphan and the widow and the alien, and most of all, the way they were to worship God, they would be holy and distinct from the world. And they would be a beacon to the world of God, the Lord of hosts, the King of kings. Israel failed to do that. But where Israel failed and where we still often fail, Jesus succeeded. Like Israel, Jesus was taken to Egypt for his own safety when he was only an infant, as we thought about last Lord's Day. Like Israel, Jesus lived under the law of God in the promised land. Like Israel, Jesus was tempted in every way and yet remained without sin. Jesus was given all the same benefits and shown all of the same care as Israel was. But unlike the nation of Israel, Jesus produced only good fruit. Good fruit after good fruit after good fruit. That was the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again in John's gospel, Jesus said that he had come to do the works of his father, to obey his father in everything to produce good fruit. And what was his father's verdict? Both at his baptism and at his transfiguration, the father said, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. Jesus is, friends, the true vine, the true and better Israel, the one who went to the cross as the representative of Israel, the best of Israel, to atone for Israel. On the cross, Jesus had placed upon his shoulders, as it were, all the filthy, disgusting, stinking fruit of his people. Those horrible, bad grapes. That bad fruit had to be destroyed. It had to be gotten rid of. And so Jesus took it upon himself and went through the hell of the wrath of God on the cross. It means that our 
representative, as our representative, the very best of Israel, the very best of humanity, his good fruit, his perfect record, his beautiful works cover over all of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became that bad fruit so that we could have his record of perfect fruitfulness. A great exchange, as Martin Luther described it, has taken place. The one who was perfectly holy, taking away, removing from us all of our unholiness and unfruitfulness. And friends, it is for that reason that we're able to come and welcome to come and should come to the Lord's table. This is what we celebrate and commemorate as we come to the Lord's table. Isaiah chapter 5 is not an easy read if you read it thoughtfully and personally and carefully. At some point in that chapter, we see our own sin. Maybe it's the sin of materialism. You always want more stuff and you never have enough. Maybe it's the sin of drunkenness. Maybe not literal drunkenness from alcohol, but a lack of self-control or discipline in some area of your life. Maybe as we read God's word, we're convicted of the sin of arrogance. You're wise in your own eyes. You're impatient with everybody else. It's not just that we fail to produce good fruit. We've produced stinking fruit, disgusting fruit, despite all that God has done for us. And so how thankful we should be for the one whom God has sent to us. Jesus, the true vine, who truly fulfills the words that we'll sing in a moment from Psalm number one. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And yet it was that fruitful one, that fruitful vine, the Lord Jesus, who went to the place of burning and destruction and punishment where the, the wild and fruitless vines deserve to be. He took our sin upon himself so that we could become the righteousness of God, so that we as well think of the Lord's day, that we could be grafted in, that we could be attached to that great vine, that life-giving vine, so that we could be fruitful like he is fruitful. What a savior. What a blessing to hear Jesus say to us this evening, I am the true vine. Amen.